Good morning, everybody. I'm Lucas. Um, it's a joy and a pleasure and honor for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, my wife is Antoinette. Our daughter is Josephine. Um, they're not here right now because she is 13 weeks old, and she can't be here that long. So, um, But she, she crushed it in the first service. She, I, like, I told everybody in the first service, if you hear a baby screaming and a lovely lady like running away with the baby, I was like, that's mine. Don't worry, that's mine. But none of that happened. She didn't even make a sound. It was great. Um, so like Jason said, we, <clears throat> we're in 1 Timothy 6 this morning. Um, I'm going to get us through the first half of the chapter. Jason's going to finish it out for us um, next week. And to start, I'm just going to remind us of some, kind of some recurring themes that have been traced through this whole series as we've been going through this letter. The theme verse that we've kind of landed on, 1 Timothy 3.15, it says, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And the theme here is that our, our theology and our integrity matter, and it matters how those things uh, intersect. It matters how one informs the other. Um, and that's definitely going to be relevant and evident in the, in the text that we're looking at this morning. So I'll give you a little outline of where we're going to be. We're getting through the first 10 verses, a couple questions that we're going to answer uh, in each of those sections. And the first question, how are Christians who are slaves to uh, conduct themselves, is kind of a big question, right? And there's, oh, hey, how's it going? I'm seeing, I'm seeing students. I'm seeing old students. Um, that's kind of a big question. There's some, there's some implications to that question. And if you've, been, uh, if you've been here with us as we've been going through this series, you know that there have been a number of challenging, confusing uh, passages that have, have been here in, in this book. And I'm thankful to be a part of a church that doesn't like shy away from that, right? We, we, we dive into those things and we look at those things and we have a desire for the truth. Uh, and there's, a, there's another... You know, confusing uh, couple of statements here in verses 1 and 2 uh, regarding slavery. And I guess that uh, Jason just was done doing hard passages. He was just tired of it. Um, he saw, he was looking at this, and he saw slavery. Lucas. <laughs> it's all you. You got it. Uh, that's not what happened at all. That's not what happened. I knew I was going to do this. Um, Jason and I have discussed this, and... Uh, um, he's been helpful to me in preparing, so I have, I have things to share, and um, I'm, I'm excited to do it. So, but before we do that, I, I think I need, to, I need to pray, so I want to pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that we can open it. Lord, we acknowledge that your thoughts are higher than ours, and that you are wise, and we come to you with humility, and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us uh, the truth in your word and make much of yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so verses 1 and 2, how are Christians who are slaves to conduct themselves? Let's, just, let's read these two verses, First Timothy 6, 1 and 2. It says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare 
of their slaves. So he's giving commands to slaves who are Christians. Um, and we're going to talk about those commands in a minute in the, in the, you know, in the context of the, of the letter. But before we do that, if you hear those words and you feel a little uncomfortable with, with what he's saying, you're not alone. Uh, many people have looked at verses like this or other places in the New Testament that give um, almost identical uh, instructions to slaves. And people look at this and they kind of grapple with the question, is Paul approving of this? Is Paul approving of slavery? Um, what we might want is for him to just outright say, I, I prohibit the practice of slavery. It needs to stop now, right? Like we, maybe we want him to say that, but he doesn't. And instead, he gives instructions to those who are slaves. Um, and in Ephesians, he gives instructions to Christians who are slave masters. And so the, Christ, the, 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 the question that comes to bear is, is that implying approval, right? Is that condoning um, this practice. And if you've had that question before, it's a fair question. It's a fair question. I think we'd do well to think about it for a little bit and try to come to the truth. And if you have never had that question, if you've never grappled with that, um, that's okay. I still hope that this would be helpful for you, and um, I hope that this would stir up your affection for Jesus and stir up your faith in God's goodness. So before we move on in the in the in our text, I just want to take a minute to try to answer this question. Does the Bible, does Paul condone slavery? Okay, so let's, let's think about it. Jason has done a really good job through this series of teaching us about two uh, hermeneutical principles, which is just a fancy way of saying how to interpret the Bible. Um, these two hermeneutical principles have been context, right? Context is king, and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And we're going to Look at both of those things regarding um, this passage. I said in the first service that um, you know, I feel like we hear about these things so much from, from Jason, from the pulpit, and they're, they're, it's wonderful tools that we're being equipped with. Um, we hear context is king a lot, and I, kinda, I feel like maybe the next time Spada rolls out some Two Rivers swag, like we've got, you know, grace is dope, we've got love people, love people. We need a context is king shirt, right? <laughs> We need a context as king t-shirt or something. Um, okay. So let's look at context first. All right. We'll look at the context first. The New Testament authors wrote in a Roman world that made regular practice of slavery. And when I say that, I'm sure we're all thinking about slave trade of the Western world that we're all aware of, right? So that's kind of, that's our context, that's what we're thinking about. Um, the ancient Greco-Roman slave practices were in some ways similar to that, and in some ways they were distinct. So let me just tell you a few things that we need to know about ancient Greco-Roman slavery practices. One, it was ubiquitous. My wife told me last night that, to not say that word. She was looking through the notes, she was like, you shouldn't say that word, it's too big. Um, do you know what it means? You, gotta, you know what it means, right? I know you know what it means. Um, it's common, right? It's pervasive. It's everywhere. Um, it's ubiquitous. And this is super important. This is very important. I'll give you some numbers. Scholars estimate that 30% of the Roman population were slaves. Some 60 million people. Slaves. 
That is a lot, a lot of people. Um, and that's just those who are enslaved. That doesn't say anything about what the rest of the population thought about it, right? It was just incredibly common, um, ingrained in the culture that the early church occupied. It was violent. So again, we're, we're, think, we're thinking about the slavery that we're aware of from Western history. It was violent, um, similar, but there were exceptions in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Um, something called indentured servitude was common. And this more so resembled like an ongoing employee-employer relationship. And in short, what it could look like is someone would say, oh, I have these debts, I can't pay them, so I will enter into the service of whoever I'm in debt to, you know, for X amount of time, right? And you would, they would live with that person, they'd have their needs met, and they would just be working for them in an ongoing um, timeline. So that was willful. That was willful, but you could, would still consider that like a form of slavery, indentured servitude. Um, and now the early church, the early church, so Timothy's church in Ephesus that Paul is writing this letter to, um, as well as every church in the New Testament, was a relatively small group of people that was often persecuted by those of the dominating culture. And they kind of thought of them as like a cult, right? They kind of thought of the Christians as like, who are these crazy people, you know, talking about this Jesus guy? What? It was weird, right? They were, they were this small group of people oppressed by the dominating culture um, early on in the early church. That would eventually change, but early on, that was, that was their reality. So put yourself in their position. You're a small group of people. Um, you don't have any equity in the culture that you live in. And this slavery is like foundational to the cultural practices that you are living in. For, for the early church to think that they would change that would have been unthinkable to them. That would have been a monumental task for them to try to take on. And if Paul had just stood up and said, Slaves need to be released, you know, give the explicit condemnation that we want, that we want to see him say. If he had done that, um, he would have been completely disregarded. He probably would have invited the church to further persecution. And that might explain, on some level, the lack of an outright condemnation in these verses, Okay. But we should also keep in mind that just because Paul doesn't explicitly condemn the practice of uh, owning a slave and slave trading, that doesn't imply that he condoned it. Okay, let me say that again. Just because he didn't explicitly condemn it, that doesn't imply that he condones it, okay? And I'll give you another example of this line of reasoning. Um, I'm a teacher. I work with high school kids, and high school kids dress in ways that I don't understand, okay? I think they look absurd. Um, a lot of times they come in my class, and I'm like, man, you're crazy. Like, you, you're just you're acting a fool with the way that you're looking, and I, I don't condone it, right? Like, I don't, I don't like it. I don't accept it. I don't condone it, right? Does this make sense? But I'm not going to tell them that explicitly to their face. I'm not going to see a kid walk in my class and say, nope, 
you need to go home and change before you can come into my classroom. I'm not going to do that. Why am I not going to do that? I'm not going to do that because if I did that, then two things would happen, okay? The first thing that would happen is that they are not going to change their clothes, okay? That's, that's not going to happen. Uh, second thing is that the platform that I have created to be a presence in their life, to be a guiding voice, would be shaken if I did that. And I think that that might give us maybe a better sense of what Paul and the New Testament authors might have been dealing with when it comes to slavery. But still, the threat of uh, persecution, guaranteed rejection by the world, that didn't stop Paul from taking other moral issues to task in his letters. Um, So perhaps the context is not enough on its own to bring clarity on this matter. So we talked about the context, so now let's talk about Scripture, interpreting Scripture. Okay. We're going to look at some other places in the Bible that might be able to inform our understanding of how Paul and the New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors uh, really, really felt about this. So we're going to, just real quick, this is, this is a pretty quick one. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10, Paul does condemn enslavers as ungodly, sinful, unholy, and irreligious. 1 Timothy 1.10, he condemns enslavers, okay? Um, That word was specifically talking about the practice of kidnapping someone and forcing them into slavery. Sometimes it's translated man-stealing. So that, I mean, maybe we could liken that to, like, trafficking, right? You're kidnapping someone and forcing them into slavery. And he does out, like, that is an outright prohibition from Paul in 1 Timothy 1.10. but still, we might think, okay, so he's saying don't kidnap people, force them into slavery, that's great. But what about people that already had slaves? Or what about people that already were slaves? Because he's giving instructions to these people, and the question still remains, why doesn't he just, you know, condemn it? Um, and this is where we might, we might need to let Scripture interpret Scripture in a general sense, Okay. And this is the statement that I I want us to try to land on here. The Bible frequently undermines the foundation of slavery, which is the rejection of human dignity and hatred. And we're going to look at some verses that I think uh, prove this to be the case. I thought when I was preparing this, when I was was, um, getting ready, I thought that I might read these verses and make some points on them and say a couple things on each one. But I think that instead I'm just going to read them. I'm just going to read them. And while I read them, um, think of it as a little exercise. I want you to consider a world where these words that I'm about to read you from, from God's word are actually taken seriously. Consider a world where these words are believed and put into practice All the time, without exception. Consider a world where that's true and just take them at face value. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. People are very good. 
Genesis 1, 27 and 31. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's Paul in Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? That's God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 14, 31. So after hearing those words and thinking of a world where they're taken seriously and put into practice, ask yourself the question again, does the Bible condone slavery? I don't think so. I think the answer is no. In fact, I think that the Bible gives a vision of a world where no such practice could ever exist. If biblical teaching is carried out, right? If we take it at face value, believe it, and do what it says, no such thing would ever happen. Because if we do carry it out, our social interactions with each other will be transformed to the furthest extent. And from the inside out, social fabric would change. I have friends uh, that feel that the Bible stands in the way of social justice. Um, And that purely human efforts might create a heaven on earth between people, right? And... I, I, I can't, I don't understand that, that opinion because I don't see any other worldview or human voice that is saying what this book says in regards to how we're supposed to interact with each other. What other voice, what other worldview tells us to love people that hate us What other worldview tells you to love people that are different from you? I don't hear that anywhere else, but I hear it in this book. And I hear it in the words of Jesus Christ. And I hear it in the words of Paul. And I don't know what could be more relevant to 2022 than that. This is something we need to understand about the Bible. It's not, this book is not a a step-by-step instruction guide on how to influence public policy and create social revolution. That's not what it's about. 
And if we read it with the hope of finding out how to influence public policy and create social revolution, we'll be disappointed. That's not what it's for. What the Bible does offer us is practical counsel on godly living, right? Integrity matters. Remember our theme, integrity matters. How you interact with each other matters. And the Bible has much to say about that, which ironically is the only thing that can produce change. And I think that Paul would be proven right over history here. Um, Perhaps the earliest known argument for the injustice of slavery came from Gregory of Nyssa, Christian church father in the fourth century. That's kind of a, that's a major distinction, right? First, first recorded human to ever say this is wrong is a Christian. The abolitionist movement in antebellum America, pre-emancipation, Civil War America, the abolitionist movement had undeniably gospel-driven roots. We all know, we all know about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and we all know the I Have a Dream speech. Did you, guys, did you read the I Have a Dream speech in school? Did you, like, do a... I did that. You had to, like, circle all the words and whatever. I don't teach English. I teach math, so I don't know what they do. But um, We all know that speech. We all know parts of it very well. But what about this part? This is, this is straight from the speech, okay, from, from Dr. King's lips. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That's from his, his speech. That is Isaiah 40, verses 4 to 5, verbatim. Guys, the men and women who fought for abolition and social justice over the course of history mostly did so not because they thought that slavery was wrong. Of course, they did think that it was wrong. But the reason they were fighting for it was not because they alone thought it was wrong. The reason they were fighting for it is because they thought God thought it was wrong. And because God thought it was wrong, they thought it was wrong. Many have and will continue to criticize the Bible for what it does not say about slavery, right? We want it to have the outright, explicit condemnation. That's what we want to see. But the fact remains that what it does say about human interaction and the worth of a person What it does say laid the foundations for abolition in ancient and modern times. It's no stretch of the imagination. I don't think this is a stretch of imagination to think that had the New Testament not been written, slavery most likely would have endured in a way that Christians prevented it from doing. I don't think that's a stretch of the imagination. So does the Bible condone slavery? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And that brings us back to uh, the actual verses here, verses 1 and 2. So like I said, I just wanted to take a minute to try to answer that question. Does the Bible condone slavery? Um, now let's, let's go back to the text and think about what Paul is saying to the believers in this church in Ephesus through Timothy. Let's, let's get back on the ground and see what, see what he's saying, Okay. 
So, verse 1 says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So, if a Christian finds themselves as a slave, they are to honor and serve their masters well, in a way that is unique. Okay? And in doing so, they're going to glorify the name of God in that context. Verse 2, those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So a Christian slave who, whose master is also a Christian, the slave is not to consider that a reason to slack off. Um, instead, they're to serve their master even all the more because they are dear to them. They're dear to them as a member of God's family. And this falls in line with the continued theme of doctrine leading to right living that we've been carrying through this whole series, right? Doctrine and integrity matters. How you interact with people matters. And I think the question, at least the question I kind of found myself asking when I was reading these, you can ask yourself, well, Paul, if integrity matters, how much does it matter? Because there are limits. Is there a boundary to our integrity mattering? Well, integrity matters so much so that if you find yourself enslaved, if you find yourself in that circumstance, you are still to seek to become like Jesus in your interactions with other people. That's crazy. What a standard for interpersonal interaction. He's laying on us. And of course, none of us are slaves. Um, but aren't we all, I mean, some of us are employees. Some of us serve people that are above us in different contexts, right? How do you interact with those people? How do you talk about your boss? And I think this is the takeaway we can get from these verses. The circumstances of our interpersonal relationships have no influence on how we are supposed to conduct ourselves within that relationship. Slavery is a broken relationship. And Paul is telling Christians who are slaves, you are still to love and serve that person. So for us, it doesn't matter what the context or the circumstances surrounding my relationship with another person is. The standard is that I treat them well, even if I know I'm not going to be treated well in return. This is crazy. An unbelievable standard that Paul, Paul lays on us. And think that if they did this, in, in giving these commands, Paul made the church... In this context, Paul made the church to be the place that slavery, as the Greco-Roman world knew it, would be no more. Because think about them actually interacting with each other like this. Everyone else in that time would see them and think, what, what are they doing? It's so different. And it would change. And I think we can consider that in our own interactions with other people. The call is to treat people well no matter what the circumstances of your relationships are. Okay, let's move on to verses 3 and 5. 3 to 5. 
what happens when people do not follow these instructions. Um, so we'll, we'll pick up reading here um, in verse 3. He says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. So he's moving on now. Um, this, kinda, this, this reference almost goes back to chapter 5 a little bit too. He just finished a section on personal interactions, social interactions, social relationships. He's saying these are the things you are to insist on, right? Integrity matters, treat people well. These are the things you are to insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. So now he's going to talk about some false teachers that were teaching otherwise, right? And he's, talk, he's, he's referenced these, these uh, false teachers already in the letter, but he's going to do so again here. He's going to describe what their lives look like. He's going to describe what their lives look like when uh, they don't follow this. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. I think that uh, that phrase, interest in controversies and quarrels about words, the Proverbs have much to say about quarrels, starting quarrels, and being one who quarrels. Um, they paint a picture of life that I don't want my life to look like, right? Starting quarrels. It's an interesting study. Go check out the Proverbs and what they have to say about quarreling. At the end of this section, he points out that the, these false teachers must have been touting religion and spirituality as a, as a cash grab, right? They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And he's going to focus on this for the, for the next couple verses. Uh, so we're going to move on to 6 to 10. Try to answer this question. How are Christians to conduct themselves regarding money? This is what he's going to focus on. So verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Just sit in that for a second. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He's not just saying godliness with contentment is what you're supposed to do if you're a Christian or what you're supposed to strive for, you know. He's saying it's good. It's gain. You'll be better off, right? when we have godliness and contentment. It is actually gain. Um, I think about a couple weeks ago, Greg Hook, when he, when, he was, when he was teaching, showed a clip from The Lord of the Rings, if anybody was here. It's a clip, Gandalf, the wizard Gandalf, is talking to Bilbo Baggins, and he tells him, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And that's what I see here. Godliness with contentment is gain. Godliness is not robbing us. It helps us. It's gain. And this, uh, this word contentment that he uses, godliness with contentment, it implied like a perfect inward condition that was unrelated to circumstance, independent of circumstance. Makes me think of uh, Paul's words in Philippians 4 that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Philippians 4 uh, 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Of course, we know that verse, but the verse before it, Philippians 4.12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Contentment, a perfect condition of the heart, not dependent on circumstances. You, we can have that. We can have that. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Maybe you've heard that, that phrase before. You can't take it with you, right? can't take it with you. Um, if you treasure something on earth that you can't take with you, then you're treasuring the wrong thing. Um, my wife, my wife is a saint. Um, three months into our, our marriage, I fell, fell with a, a deep condition, okay, an inhibiting condition that I like to call truck fever. I wanted a truck <laughs> really bad, okay? I got a bad case of truck fever three months in, okay? Um, I couldn't stop thinking about it, all right? Every chance I got, I'm Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and whatever, Auto Trader, I'm looking for trucks, okay? I want me a truck. And I convinced my new bride three months in to spend about like every dollar we had on a truck. Um, and she did it. She did it. And we still have that truck. But uh, we, we love that truck. We've made lots of memories in that truck. Uh, we have enjoyed that truck a great deal. But right now, that truck that I was treasuring, right, needs about half its worth in repairs. And I'm not really driving it because I'm afraid the rear axle is going to fall out and that's toast for me, right? Um, can't take it with you. Can't take it with you. Because heaven is a place where treasures don't rot and they can't be stolen. Verse, nine, uh, verse 8. But if we add food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So let's think about these verses for a couple moments here. Here's one thing we need to understand. I feel like when we talk about money, especially, I mean, verse 10 is a famous verse, right? Love of money is the root of all evil. We've, we've probably all heard that verse before. I feel like sometimes when we talk about money, uh, we feel like guilty for having it. And that need not, need not be the case. Uh, money and wealth is not bad in and of itself. It's not an ungodly thing. Um, what you might notice, what you might notice is the words that he uses to describe a love of money, and that is a problem. He says, um, he says in verse 9, those who want to get rich. He says in verse 10, uh, people that are eager, eager for money. The love of money, right? It's a condition of the heart. Because there, there were characters in the Bible that were unthinkably wealthy, unthinkably rich for their time, okay? And they loved God. They loved God. And that's, that's okay. So it's not a bad thing to have money. It's also not a bad thing to have not a lot of money, right? We don't need to be walking around like whipping our backs and saying, look at how little money I have. That, God's not impressed with that. It's a love of it either way, right? A condition of the heart um, that gets us in trouble. 
And let's think about verse 10 for just a second here, faith, you know, common, uh, commonly known verse. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is not a root. The love of money is a root. The love of money is not the root. The love of money is a root of evil. It's very, that's a, that's a, it's a stirring verse, right? It's a stirring verse, but again, it just brings back to a condition of the heart. Does your money have you or do you have your money? Which way is it? Which way is it in your inner self? All right, so I want to I want to step back for a second away from um, away from the the text and just point out that we exist in a culture that really glamorizes getting rich, right? We exist in a, cult- a culture that glamorizes wealth and advancement and money, and I don't think I need to prove myself right by saying in saying that, but I'm going to prove myself right anyways. Um, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to read you some. I'm going to read you some things, but I got to give you some background. So I'm a, I'm a math teacher. I work with teenagers, and at the end of my math tests, I always give a little bonus question that doesn't have anything to do with math. So normally, like. You know, it might say, draw me a picture, or write me a joke, or make me laugh, or once, sometimes I just say, impress me, dot, 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 you know, I go see what they come up with. Um, one, of the, one of the bonus questions that I do near the end of a semester, near the end of a class, when kids are comfortable, um, I'll write the question, what is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? And I'm going to read you some responses. They're pictures on my phone, okay? They're just pictures of the test. And uh, straight from the mind of a, of a child ages 14 to 18, okay? What is the meaning of life? Food. <laughs> Without it, the world would be dead and sad. Yeah. Yep. The meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is not to fall into a matrix system. Like school or work. (laughs) Not to pay taxes, but to live how you want to live. I made the joke that I think that's a run-on sentence. But the meaning of life is not to fall into a matrix system like school. So I guess it doesn't matter if it's a run-on sentence. What is the meaning of life? Ask Mrs. Cox. She seems to know. (laughs) I don't know what she said, but... So there's some that are funny, right? There's some that, like, just make your heart go to a terrible place. Um, But there's some that are good. Okay, so this one says, what's the meaning of life? To show God's love and his message to everybody. To be kind. I brought you up. I'm going to bring you back down. (laughs) What is the meaning of life? To straight up vibe, bro. <laughs> yeah. And they drew a picture of the sunglasses emoji with the peace sign, straight up vibe, bro. Yeah. What is the meaning of life? Food, again, common theme with a picture of an ice cream cone. But I'm going to read you these two, these two, uh, because I think they're relevant to what we're talking about here, right? The love of money, love of money. What is the meaning of life? Money, girls, 
and maybe happiness. He didn't say girls. What is the meaning of life? To make mad bank and have a crazy time. So get that bag up. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, um, that's actually really good for you, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for you. You're not missing anything. If you don't know what that means, it's okay. You're better off. Uh, it's like saying bag of money, right? Lots of money. So when they say get that bag up, they're like, get that bag up, get, get that money. And this one's funny to me because it's like she's trying to convince me. Get, so get that bag up, Mr. Smith, you know, go get it. Guys, the meaning of life, the meaning of life is to get that bag up. I'm not making it up. And I only chose two that have to do with money. Okay, I read you some other funny ones that are goofy, whatever, I got the ha-has. The money ones, there's only two of them. Well, well, I only read you two of them. But I would say of all the answers to this question, the vast majority of students say something along the lines of making a lot of money. That's the meaning of life. And I think that shows that most of us have an inward sense that wealth is equated with contentment. I will have what I want, right? Because once I have it, I'll be okay. Like me, I will have that truck, you know? I will have it. Because once I have it, I'll be okay. And it's not true. And I think this brings us to the heart of the matter. We think that we know what is going to bring us contentment, and we're wrong. We think it might be money, we think it might be something else, and we're wrong. But God knows what is going to put our heart at rest. The good life is only found, is only found by abiding in Jesus. And to finish this out, um, we're going to look at a passage uh, from, from Jesus in the Gospels I think can give some clarity here. We've mentioned the verse throughout this series, 1 John 5.3. It says, the commands of God are not burdensome. So in our interactions with people and the, and the status of our heart, God's commands are not burdensome. The modern view is that self-indulgence, do what I want, right? I'll make that money, get that bag up, is the only path to real life. And it's that, that mentality. I will have what I want, wealth and materialism. I will have it because it's going to make me okay. And Jesus corrects this kind of thinking with a, a paradoxical teaching in Matthew 16. Says, Forever who, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It's Matthew 16, 25 to 26. This is a teaching from Jesus that I feel like simultaneously makes my heart rest and makes my head like go crazy. Because it's paradoxical, right? It seems like it shouldn't make any sense. It's like, the, it's like these words are, it's a truth that my heart knows is a truth that I don't know how to express on my own, and I need Jesus to, to help me do it. Here's what, I think, here's, what, here's what I think he's saying. To save our life in this context, whoever wants to save their life, when Jesus says that, 
He's talking about when we put ourselves and our wants and our desires above everything else, right? Because we think that is what is going to save us. If I make myself like God and I'm the center and it's all about me, my desires are first, nothing else matters. That's what we think is going to save our lives. And we're wrong. We're wrong. When we make ourselves like God and we try to save ourselves, uh, save our lives by putting our wants and our desires first, what does it amount to? I think it amounts to ruin. I think it amounts to destruction. And in the context of Paul writing to Timothy about the love of money, look at the end of verse 10. It says, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When we try to save our lives... By the world, money, wealth, whatever, pierce ourselves with many griefs. That's what we get. But to lose your life, to lose your life for Jesus, is to give up being satisfied by the world. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So I'm going to give up. That doesn't mean I don't work hard, right? It doesn't mean I don't take responsibility seriously. But I do understand that the good life's in Jesus. And in doing so, we find ourselves fully content in him. Let me show you this quote from uh, Dallas Willard. Jesus does not deny, our, our, not deny us personal fulfillment, but shows us the only true way to it. In him, we find our life, right? I'm, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. In him is life. The only life. And Jesus is the full and abundant life that the inner self has always yearned for. Because we have a yearning, right? We have a yearning for contentment. And it's not going to be satisfied by anything, anything other than Jesus Christ. Certainly not wealth. Before the grace of God entered, sin separated us from that life. Couldn't have it. But remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners so that now you and I can enjoy this life forever. And guys, here's another thing we should consider about wealth. There's, like, there's no neutrality on the, love of what, on the love of money, especially in our culture, right? Unless we make conscious efforts to be content in Jesus, right? Train ourselves in godliness. Our integrity matters, right? All these things that we've been talking about in this series. Unless we take conscious efforts to do that and be content in Jesus, we're going to look for something else. There's no neutrality. And it could be money. It could be something else. Our want is going to persist. And I think that that's uh, significant for us during this time of the year as well. Uh, worship team, you guys can make your way back up. I think that's important for us during this time of year as well because Christmas time, a lot of the world is living in a, in a state of want right now, right? I want this, I want that, I want that because it's gonna make me okay. But Christ's coming is the opposite of that for us. Jesus' coming is rest and contentment. I'm gonna finish... Um, I'm going to finish by reading a section of Psalm 63 because I think that, uh, 
I think God's word can say this better than I can. I think this is a, good, a great picture of what it means to be content, content in, in, in Jesus, content in the Lord. Psalm 63 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it is true and it is living and active, and I pray that you would create in us, in your church, um, hearts of contentment and joy and gratitude uh, that would be unique to the people in our lives. It's in your name we pray, amen.